This is Quiet Revolutionaries, a podcast about a little-known group of British activists in the mid-20th century, and how they helped to shape the idea of equal partnership and relationships. I'm Dr Sharon Thompson, and I've spent several years researching a group known as the Married Women's Association, a name that might seem misleading given the strident and sometimes radical views of its members, as we've seen in the first two episodes of this series. In this podcast, I explore the intriguing and sometimes shocking story of the Married Women's Association. I'll be going back in history to uncover how this group's attempts at reform created unexpected ripples that connect to fundamental principles of equality today. In this third episode, we will look at what the Married Women's Association wanted to achieve in more detail, and why, in seeking to reform the law to introduce equal partnership and marriage, these women and men were both radical and revolutionary. So, let's zoom out for a second. We know that the association was formed just before the Second World War and that the legal and economic position was not good for married women at this time. Depending on your job, you might have been fired when you got married. If you got to keep your job, you wouldn't be paid as much as men. You couldn't get a mortgage in your own name. You couldn't get taxed independently. And on top of this, as a wife, you were expected to do all of the childcare unless, of course, you could afford to employ help. You also had to behave as if keeping your house beautiful was a profession of its own. So even though for most of us today the notion of spouses being equal in their relationships is neither radical nor revolutionary, in the days of the Married Women's Association, it was. The Married Women's Association made an important contribution to feminist debate and broke new ground in this arena. By bringing power imbalances to the fore within marriage, the group was politicising the relationship between men and women in the family. In other words, it was politicising the private sphere. When viewed in this way, their policy reveals a previously overlooked connection with the later women's liberation movement of the 1960s and 70s, that the personal is the political. And the members of the Married Women's Association had a few different and important ideas for how to address the economic status of women through reform. The first idea is a catchy slogan, wages for wives. This is what it sounds like. Wives get paid for their work in the home by agreeing for their husbands to pay them a salary. So by being paid a wage by her husband, this model values a housewife's labour, literally. She can negotiate payment for her domestic and caregiving work. And instead of a husband providing his wife with a housekeeping allowance to cover household outgoings such as groceries, which the wife couldn't own, she would instead receive money as a worker, as an employee. Theoretically, this could have strengthened the economic power of housewives. After all, for most housewives of the 1940s and 50s, housework took up most of their time and was unpaid. Women had no way of acquiring property for themselves because the work they did was historically seen as unskilled, naturally feminine and women's duty. For working class women who also worked outside the home, they had limited options and low paid jobs. 
And as a result then, the association's early claims for a housewife's wage were subversive and disruptive because they pulled back the curtain on the private sphere of the family home and demanded recognition of the housewife like any other worker. If housework were recognised as work that was valuable and skilled, it was possible that housewives would have greater strength in bargaining power in marriage. Once a wage was agreed between spouses, the association proposed that the wife should be required by law to exercise her duties like any other worker. So this gave the husband legal recourse in the event his wife went on strike from her wifely duties. He had legal rights if his wife refused to do the housework. This stance appears to be framed to make the proposal of wages for wives attractive to men. After all, the Married Women's Association needed men's support if legal reform was to happen. As the Married Women's Association's members themselves pointed out, A carefully drafted bill for a statute law may do a lot to win male sympathy to our side if we make it quite clear that we are against the irresponsible woman as well as the irresponsible man. In keeping with the concept of wages for housework, the Married Women's Association argued that instead of viewing housewives as being invisible and unemployed, they should be seen as members of the working population deserving of recognition by the labour movement. So the association wanted to be seen as a trade union. It started calling itself the Housewives Union and unsuccessfully applied several times to try and formally obtain trade union status. By representing unpaid housewives, the Married Women's Association was arguing it should be afforded the same recognition as other unions representing paid workers. On a practical level, the association as a trade union made a lot of sense. As a union, albeit an unofficial one, housewives in a legally precarious position with no money to meet the needs of the family could connect with others in a similar position requiring help and support. The association could provide women with legal advice or could help women bring their cases to court when they didn't have the means to do so themselves. It gave housewives someone to turn to. As well as helping individuals, as a union, the association also took the stories of its members and their experiences from their letters and the research it did on married women's inferior legal status. And it put all of this together and it used it to propose reform. As a union for housewives, it highlighted the value of care work in the home. It showed how housewives propped up the economy and allowed it to survive because of the unpaid work these women were doing. And it spoke on behalf of all those women who were too exhausted to campaign and who didn't have the time or the energy to devote to the group. This letter from Mrs NJ is an example. I do so wish I could be more active for the association and would be if it were in my power, but at present I find all my time and energy taken up by looking after my house, two small children and a big garden, etc., single-handed. I find that I work almost until bedtime on most days, and even so, it is difficult to find enough time for gardening, cleaning of windows, etc., although I would love to have more children. I cannot face the utter drudgery and complete giving up of one's personal interests and recreation that having more than two children would mean. It would be almost too good to be true to have one or two afternoons a week in which to do work for the association 
or pursue one's personal hobbies. All this is not meant as a grumble, merely an explanation. Another woman writing to the group said, Alone, women are helpless. We must all join the Married Women's Association. There are only glimpses of the women from the cases in which the Married Women's Association gave help in the archives. Mrs E, a member of the Married Women's Association, is one example. She was left destitute after a London County Court decided that her husband was the owner of the family's home and furniture, which she claimed was bought partly from £3 a week housekeeping allowance and partly from her own earnings. She was also denied her claim to maintenance for herself and for two of her three children by a police court because she refused to live at another address offered by the husband. There's no information available about what happened to Mrs E other than the association's stated intention to take her case to the Court of Appeal. But the association's branding as the Housewives Trade Union was also confusing and contradictory on an ideological level. After all, the association stood for equal partnership in marriage, while the purpose of trade unions was and is to regulate the inherently unequal relationship of employer and employee. If housewives were to be viewed as workers, like any other paid individual in gainful employment, did this make them employees too? It was one thing for the Married Women's Association to draw attention to power imbalances between husband and wife, and quite another to entrench this inequality by equating married women to employees. Yet, some members of the group could still see the benefits of wages for housework, and remain convinced that money paid to the wife for housekeeping services was the best route to her independence. For others, like Teresa Billington Gregg, the suffragette we heard about in the last episode, Paying wives a wage created an undesirable master-servant dynamic, but her personal notes suggest she still saw it as having some important advantages. Wages for wives was the first slogan coined or publicised by the press and much disliked by an increasing number of supporters. Personally, I think it did more good than harm. It emphasised that in a world full of wage workers, there was one enormous section of workers who got no wages at all. The taken-for-granted habit became a matter for question. Nevertheless, while the idea might have stimulated debate about women's unpaid work, there appeared to be a consensus that permitting men to behave as employers behaved further entrenched women's subservience both inside and outside the home. So, in promoting equal partnership in marriage, the Married Women's Association needed to address the power imbalances between husband and wife. It soon became clear to them that valuing women's work in the home through payment of a wage from husband to wife was not the way to do this, and propositions for reform based on wages for housework were abandoned. Remember Juanita Francis, the Australian woman who helped found the association in episode one? Well, she pointed out that the wages for wives idea was not compatible with the Married Women's Association's central aim of equal partnership in marriage. It's nothing to do with wages for housework. We think we're part of the management. A good marriage is one of agreement on money matters between husband and wife, 
a partnership marriage. Yet the association continued to maintain that it was a housewife's trade union. So it was simultaneously emphasising the housewife as a worker while ditching the idea of wages for wives. Meanwhile, the Married Women's Association needed a new strategy for equal partnership. They could see that working towards this meant that legal reform had to challenge the root of the problem, married women's lack of property ownership. Women's economic vulnerability in marriage was built into social structures and into the law because the husband controlled the finances. And so he owned the household furniture. He could determine how much money was set aside for housekeeping expenses. And that meant he could control the quality of the family's food, their shelter, their clothing. If the marriage broke down, this lack of property rights was exacerbated by the enforcement problems associated with maintenance. For instance, even though a wife could claim maintenance for herself and her children in a police court, she had limited recourse when the husband failed to pay it. For the Married Women's Association, the solution to these problems was joint ownership, whereby equal partnership meant equal ownership of the family finances and the family home during the marriage. The association therefore took the view that the husband's sole ownership of the family wage wasn't justified simply because he earned it directly. They argued that the wife should have a right to this wage too, in recognition of her work in the home. In short, the Married Women's Association's joint ownership model started out as a demand for a married woman's right to half of her husband's income. Underpinning the concept of joint ownership was the belief that work undertaken inside the home was as valuable to the family as the work done outside it. Put in the context of the 1940s, the association was radical in seeking solutions for equality by focusing on the economic roots of women's oppression. After all, it wasn't until the turn of the 21st century that the courts in England and Wales upheld the principle that spouses' homemaking and breadwinning contributions are equally valuable in marriage, therefore justifying equal sharing on divorce. The Married Women's Association had put forward this idea in the 1940s in a bill which was redrafted throughout the course of the association's history and shaped its policy over the years. The bill also encapsulated what the Married Women's Association meant by equal partnership and gave the spokespeople of the group a clear answer when asked what their goals for reform were. As Juanita Francis summarised in a 1944 radio broadcast, Our plan expresses women's discontent with her present position, but in the proposed new relationship, husband and wife are equal. Neither employs the other, but each share earnings and income by adding them together. From this pool is paid the maintenance of home and care of the children, and the remainder are then shared equally. The mother's economic status is basically a legal question. It must be defined in a new Act of Parliament on a basis of equality, giving her equal obligations. The presentation of such a bill would set a pattern of social behaviour and would automatically lead a frontline attack on the lethargy of custom which permits this grave injustice to our mothers to continue. So the bill that Juanita Francis is talking about here contains two central demands to help the Married Women's Association push for its goal of equal partnership in marriage. First is ownership jointly of certain assets. And second is a right for the wife to know how much her husband earns. So the first notable demand then, 
joint ownership of income and the home during marriage. This reflected the idea that work in the home should be valued in the same way as work outside the home. And so the assets generated during the marriage are a product of the joint efforts of both husband and wife. This wouldn't automatically mean that husband and wife would get a 50-50 split of everything in the event of divorce. No, this particular demand was about how property and money was to be shared while the marriage was still intact. So not on divorce. Why did this matter? Well, there were a few reasons. Before 1971, divorce was much more difficult and was stigmatised too. There had to be a guilty and an innocent spouse. So if the husband and wife had simply drifted apart and it was no one's fault, they couldn't divorce. Or if both of them had been at fault, for example, if both husband and wife had been unfaithful, they couldn't divorce either. So this meant that in many cases, husband and wife did separate but didn't divorce. And this, of course, had disastrous consequences for married women with absolutely no property of their own. Because they couldn't get a divorce, they couldn't enforce any right to maintenance from their husbands, and they could be left destitute. Take, for example, Mrs Shields. She worked in a cotton mill and a laundry in Lancashire for the best part of 22 years of marriage. She left her job while she was pregnant, but continued earning by looking after neighbours' children and doing domestic work, earning about one pound a week. As Ambrose Pelby, the solicitor we met in the last episode, recounted, She worked hard early and late, for periods of months at a time when her husband was on part-time or on sick leave. Mrs Shields' earnings proved to be the mainstay of the family. He goes on to evidence this by describing Mrs Shields' typical day. After working ten and a half hours a day as a tenter rover in the mill, she would do the family washing until about eight o'clock. Then cook a meal for seven, followed by the preparation of next day's dinner, housework and mending for the family. The husband gave her two pounds housekeeping for the family of seven. Later in court, it had been revealed that he'd been earning six pounds, four shillings a week. She paid his insurance and bought some of his clothes and cigarettes. Shortly before the beginning of the Second World War, Mrs Shields began to save in a banking account in her husband's name. Her sons gave her a portion of their earnings to save in this account too. And in return, she gave them pocket money and bought their clothes. When the savings account reached £208, the husband deserted the family and took the savings with him. Had the savings been comprised of Mrs Shields' housekeeping allowance, she would have had no legal right over the money. However, on Mrs Shields' account, this was not the case as she and her sons had contributed to the fund. It appears that this wasn't made clear in court as her claim for half share of the £208 wasn't granted. Mrs Shields had no money to appeal the decision and by the time she'd sought the help of the Married Women's Association, it was too late for an appeal to be brought on her behalf. The second demand made by the Married Women's Association was a right for the wife to know what her husband's income was. This problem was rooted in the law of income tax. Married women were not taxed separately from their husbands until 1990. Instead, a married woman's income was deemed to be that of her husband. So, until 1990, she was required to disclose her income to her husband, but he could conceal his from her if he wanted to. This clearly placed the power in the husband's hands. 
his ability to keep information about his own finances to himself, a privilege not afforded to his wife, created an imbalance of both financial knowledge and control. For other parts of the British Isles, this reform took even longer. Independent taxation for married and civilly partnered women in Jersey wasn't introduced until 2022. Ambrose Appelby condemned this publicly as being one of the appalling anomalies which are an insult to women. As he explained, When a married woman's income is assessed jointly, a man can keep his income secret, but a woman has to reveal hers because it's added to his for tax purposes. If a couple are assessed separately, the husband still gets the tax form addressed to him. And this could have devastating consequences for the woman the Married Women's Association were assisting. The following example was published in one of the association's newsletters. Recently, a woman applying for home help to look after her and her family during a confinement filled in the application form from the local council stating her husband's wages as £6.10 shillings a week. The organiser in that particular department knew that the mother was starving herself to keep the children clothed and fed, but when the form was checked with the husband's employer, it was disclosed that the husband, with overtime, was earning £16.17 shillings. The organiser had to keep that news to herself because it was confidential. The wife got the home help free, she thought, but the husband, unbeknown to her, paid the full rate of three shillings an hour. What is the association talking about here? Well, as far as the wife in this case is aware, the family has nothing. She is starving herself because she thinks the family has no money. She applies to the council for help. It turns out that the husband's been lying to his wife. He's earning more than twice the amount of money he's disclosing to her. But the council and the husband's employer can't tell the wife this. So the wife thinks the council has provided them with assistance when in fact the husband is footing the bill behind her back. The concept of joint ownership and transparency over finances and marriage could have made a real difference to the feminist cause according to Married Women's Association members. Of course, the idea of joint ownership had symbolic significance too. Just knowing that the wife could legally have more power over the family finances would, in the Married Women's Association's view, make a huge difference. As Teresa Billington Gregg said in this letter to Juanita Francis, dated August 1958, I'm not concerned with past propaganda. The MWA has done as much as it could, for which I admire it. But there are millions of people who have never been touched by it. But they will all be touched by the bill. At least the great majority of them will. A small pressure group like the Married Women's Association was, in her view, best placed to help married women by undermining the structures contributing to their oppression. As she said in the same letter, This bill is the biggest thing women have asked for since the vote. It means a domestic revolution. That she wrote this in a private letter suggests she genuinely believed in the revolutionary potential of this reform to transform women's lives. However, the association needed not just a legislative solution, but effective propaganda too. In its efforts to influence law, the association's most effective form of propaganda stemmed from one case. Blackwell versus Blackwell, as we'll see in the next episode. 
Thank you for listening to Quiet Revolutionaries, presented and written by me, Sharon Thompson, produced by Ed Townend and with voice acting by Lynn Horan Russell Sandberg. Special thanks to the Socio-Legal Studies Association for funding this project, the Women's Library, the National Archives, and all of the great people who agreed to be interviewed about the Married Women's Association. For further information, visit marriedwomensassociation.co.uk where you can find photos of the people mentioned in this podcast and documents from the archives. My book, Quiet Revolutionaries, which includes a foreword written by Lady Heal, is out now.